Hey, dealmakers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. I'm your host, Garrett Lynch, and as always, let's get ready to own it. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. In today's episode, we have an inspiring story of resilience, ambition, and the power of real estate to change lives. Our guest has a vision for a future real estate isn't just a financial tool, but a means to create purpose-driven lives and empower communities. You're not going to want to miss this one, so stay tuned for our interview with Elaine Stockberg. But first, I want to give a shout out to Chad Sheeler via Apple Podcasts. He said, thank you, Michael, for the opportunity. What a great experience to share my story on the show. I learned a lot in the process. Hope others feel compelled to take action and do the same. If you guys have learned something from listening to the podcast, please give us a starred review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us grow our listener base. I also want to share a success highlight from one of the students. Uh, one of our first deal makers, Caitlin Gwynn and Jeff Rodriguez, sealed a deal on an impressive 304-unit deal in Alabama, valued at $19,600,000. They were guided by the mentorship of Matt Braun and Philippe. If you guys want to figure out how you can get into an apartment complex and you don't want to go through the same pitfalls as other people want that fast track, reach out to us at themichaelblanc.com slash mentor and see if a mentor is right for you. We have a ton of success stories from that program. Also, if you're not so interested in being an active investor and, and going and buying your own apartment complexes and you just prefer to invest alongside the pros and potentially double your money, give a shout out to us at nighthawkequity.com. Set up a call. We'll chat with you, see if it's a fit to work together. And then when we have an opportunity, we'll share it with you. So Dr. Elaine Stogberg is a distinguished psychiatrist, entrepreneur, co-owner, and the co-founder of Black Swan Real Estate. Her journey is, is very inspirational. The background in healthcare administration and psychiatry, she brings a unique perspective to the real estate industry. Her exceptional educational pedigree, including elite training at a world-renowned Mayo Clinic, has provided her with profound insights as to what drives people and how to help them become the best versions of themselves. So with that, we'll get into the interview with Elaine Stogberg. Elaine, welcome to the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. So you have a pretty interesting background it looks like in the medical field, and then now you're owning and operating over 1,300 apartments across the country. How did you get into this? That's a good question, Garrett. My life uh, certainly certainly has taken a couple of turns over the last, say, five to 10 years that that I wouldn't have quite anticipated. So, you know, kind of going back, I got my undergraduate degree in biology, and then I, so that's kind of where I first had that you know, interest in the human body and physiology and all of those things. And then I actually did divert to business. So I got a master's of health administration and policy, which is basically like an MBA, but for healthcare specifically. During that time was right when my husband and I first started doing real estate investing. Our very first home, we were accidental landlords. We both owned a home, moved into his home, kept my home as a rental. And then we bought what I call our first purposeful investment before I started medical school. Nick and I still run our company together. You know, we're business partners during the day and then run our family at night. So that's really a ton of fun and a big part of the thread of the story. And then I went to medical school. I'm just very interested in 
the human body, physiology, caring for people, understanding people. I ultimately went on to become a psychiatrist. Again, very interested in understanding how humans work, what makes them tick, understanding the human condition, all of those things. But as all of that was unfolding, Nick also had a career in tech. So we both were on, you know, kind of these high powered, high burnout professions, got a lot of fulfillment out of them, but sacrificing a lot of our freedom in order to have those professions. We were having children along the way. We have four young children. And then we were also investing in real estate. So we had a single family home portfolio that we were building ourselves with our own capital. We always did a Burr business model. So we were growing, growing, growing. We've never sold a single asset. Along the way, we started working with passive partners in joint ventures. Then we eventually launched our private equity fund. And then it just made sense at that point for Nick to step back from tech. He actually stepped back from tech two years before our first private equity fund. And then I stepped away from medicine a year before our first private equity fund, just as the portfolio was growing and we were working with more and more passive partners. We've always managed that we were building a property management company in addition to that. So there's kind of a lot of different things we can you know, talk about as our time unfolds here together. But that's kind of the story of how I went to medical school, became a psychiatrist, was also doing real estate investing during that time and reached financial freedom and thought, you know, I want to keep doing this this real estate thing and help other families with their financial freedom. And so ended up running an asset management and property management company full-time instead of doing medicine. Wow. So how long were you in medicine? About 10 years. About 10 years. So your your husband was working in tech, you were in medicine. And then at what point did your husband, did you guys feel comfortable having your husband stop tech? Like, how, what did you guys own at that time? Yeah, that's an excellent question, you know, because a lot of people are grappling with when to step away from their W-2. There's lots of things to unpack there. At that point, we probably had about 40 single family homes that we owned ourselves with no partners. We, of course, had mortgages on those, but it was all our own capital. So that provided for like our basic needs in terms of mortgage, health insurance, basic food, those sorts of things, but not necessarily the lifestyle that we wanted to have. One thing I highly recommend when people are considering stepping away from W-2 employment is get as many of your conventional mortgages as possible. If you're doing single family or five units or less, it's pretty tough to get conventional mortgages without a W-2. So we maxed out all of Nick's conventional mortgages before he stepped away. And then you know, the interesting thing was in medicine, I had the opportunity to do what's called moonlighting, which is where you just go to other hospitals and pick up shifts. And so as we were preparing for him to leave his career, I structured it so that that coming year, I would earn his entire salary by picking up additional shifts at the hospital. And it was pretty intense. I would have had to have worked every other weekend for that entire year, in addition to my full-time Monday through Friday job. But we were just so committed to getting him out of traditional W-2 employment. And it turns out that when he left his career, he made back his entire year's salary in about 10 days of self-employment. And since as I've shared that story with other people, it's not that uncommon. Like that sounds a little bit crazy. You're shaking your head. No, like it's not that uncommon. It sounds a little crazy to people that haven't lived it. But I really think that for people who are really entrepreneurial, there's something about, I don't know, like like a metaphorical fire is kind of lit under you when you know that you have to create your own destiny. And so he just went out and replaced almost his entire income, which was really nice because then I was able to give away some of those weekend shifts and it wasn't too tough of a year. But that's kind of the mindset we had as we went into it was max out his conventional loans, figure out ways that we could shore up our household income in other ways, i.e. me. And then he just had you know such a fire lit under him in that you know right when he first had his time entirely to himself that everything worked out very well. 
Yeah. So you, you had kind of a, you're at a point where you're like, listen, we don't want to just lose our, all the income that we're bringing in now, but you did build a base up to like kind of a, a place where even if like worst case scenario, let's say you couldn't handle the shifts, you guys still probably would be okay. But mm-hmm. that being said, it's still, it's scary to lose that income. And I, I, this reminds me of I had a very similar situation where I was working weekends at a bar, a club. I also own like 2000 apartments and <laughs> we were building a company and I was scared to lose that ancillary income on the weekends. We were still executing the business plan, trying to work up the cash flow. Like we hadn't had any real exits yet. So mm-hmm. it's really making a, a ton of money. But, and then we were dumping all of our acquisition fees back into the business. So I was like, you know, I don't want to lose whatever that that amount that I'm making. The problem was that was a distraction. So, and I, I didn't even realize it was a distraction. Like the, the tech side was clearly a distraction from your guys' business mm-hmm. because look how fast he was able to, re- to reproduce that that income when he when he stepped away. So me stepping away from, from my weekend job, actually, even though it was outside of business hours, allowed me to really focus on my business 100% mm-hmm. of the time. And how many times would it bleed into the weekend that I that I needed to do work or I needed to pay attention? My yep. mind was in the right place. And so that was my first real, I guess, step away from always having like a side hustle or something that was always had some kind of backup income generating stream. But those backup income generating streams, if they're in the form of replacing time for money. It's there's they can really sometimes be a distraction, often be a distraction from mm-hmm. from the main goal of of running and operating your business. And so I think that's that's exactly what you're describing right now. Okay, so that's really cool. So so you guys were a little hesitant. You're like, okay, we got this this kind of main plan that didn't work out, but it, luckily you're able to pivot. You guys had gotten pretty far already with 40 homes while still both working W2s. I don't even know how people do that. That's awesome. <laughs> before you stepped away. But what would you say to to somebody that maybe doesn't have 40 homes? Maybe they have a few. At what point should they maybe consider taking a, a similar stance to where, where you did, where somebody broke away or or there were some major adjustments to really go all in? Mm, that's that's such a good question. You know, a couple of things that come to mind in in no particular order are first create a budget that's as lean as possible, right? So, you know, you you were alluding to things there, like you were putting your acquisition fees back into the business. We did that all along as we were growing our portfolio. We never took profit out of our, out of our portfolio. We always put it back into more and more acquisitions because we figured, you know, we're, we're living off of less than our actual incomes, right? Because we're taking some of our income to put it into investment. So whatever income the investments are producing, let's just put those back in. So create as lean a budget as possible, knowing that it's for a short period of time for a greater purpose to get to that freedom. That's something that comes to mind. I mentioned lending. So get as much as many of your conventional loans if you're choosing to do single family or or five units or smaller prior to leaving W-2 employment because it can be pretty challenging to get those loans after, after leaving employment. And then just, you know, really ask yourself, I think as a psychiatrist, I I have this, you know, deep understanding of human nature. And we all, you know, whether it's people listening to the show that are go-getters, investors, those sorts of things, you know, people in my office that were say, 
you know, retiring after a traditional career. Like we all have this idea that we want freedom, that we want to just wake up when we want and sit on the couch if we want or go to the beach if we want. And like the truth is that's not really true for most humans. And there's really good data to show that people that do traditional retirement and then don't fill their time with things like clubs, religious activities, family members, grandchildren, whatever, they have a much shortened lifespan than folks who leave traditional employment. And I'm talking at like traditional retirement age, yeah. leave traditional employment and then immediately fill their schedule with clubs and social activities and you know rotary and you know all of those things. So be thinking about when you leave this W-2 job, what does your schedule look like? Because you will then be accountable to yourself. So what time do you wake up? What are the activities that you do? Who are you checking in with? How are you having accountability? What are your revenue generating activities? Yes, you're building in freedom. Like one of the things that Nick and I have today that we didn't have when we were working in tech and medicine is we both go to the gym five days a week and work with a personal trainer. As soon as I'm done with this call, I'm going to the gym. And it was important to us that the gym come from our working time, not from the evening time, because that means it would come from our children. So yes, you can build in freedom. Maybe you wake up at a time that you know fits you better or you're getting to the gym or you know whatever it is. But really think about how are you structuring your day when you're only accountable to yourself? What are your revenue generating activities? And what is the greater why for all of this that you're doing? Those are some things that come to mind in no particular order. So hopefully there was some nugget of of helpfulness there. Yeah, I relate to that quite a bit. I think that I actually simulated retirement when I was 29 and I went and I exited my first multifamily company and I got paid more money than I had ever gotten paid before. And I was like, you know, I'm going to see, I always thought the the game plan, the exit, like the financial freedom goal was to end up on a beach doing whatever you want, not caring exactly what you described there. And I found out pretty quickly that I, that I was miserable. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time I was, I was in Australia on a Bondi beach and I lived there for a couple of weeks. I wasn't really doing much except drinking and, and hanging out with people. And, and it, I was miserable. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that perception, anyone that's listening that has that perception, that's that's a, my experience is that and exactly what you said. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how long I could have gone on doing that. I had to be productive. I had to produce something to society yeah. in order to feel whole again. Humans love to work. We love to produce. We love to contribute. We love to be in relationship with others. That often comes from you know some doing some type of productive activity together. It can come from leisure activities, but it often comes from we have this common mission. Let's go out and and, and do the mission together. Let's hike this path together. You know, I think about like something that's just been like tickling my mind lately as I recently have become obsessed with Taylor Swift. She's just this like amazing businesswoman. Turns out I actually do like her music or whatever. Like the woman is still on tour, right? She's a billionaire. She's in this new relationship with Travis, like all these things. She doesn't have to go out and tour, but she does because humans love to work. They love to be part of a mission. They love to be part of a legacy. Think of all of the people that, you know, we all know, any celebrities we could name, any, you know, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, like these people that are financially free, literally a thousand or a million lifetimes over. And yet they still work like that's probably true for us, too, like that even with financial freedom, you probably want to be doing something productive and be thinking about what is that? How will it contribute revenue? How will it contribute meaning to you? And then what will the structure be so that you don't find yourself, you know, three or six months into it, sleeping in every day, not having any sense of purpose? Like that sounds fun, but it actually creates quite a drag on us as human beings. 
If you're interested in passively investing in multifamily syndications, we'd love to hear from you. Go to nighthawkequity.com, click the join button and join our investment club. Fill out a short form and then you can have a call with us and we'd be happy to share with you some of our upcoming investment opportunities we have. That's nighthawkequity.com. Talk to you soon. Yeah, I, I couldn't have, couldn't have said it better. I think I think people need that in order to like if you look at you're working most of your life and and most most people are working most of their lives. Now, what you want to create is something that you remove the the financial component where you don't necessarily have that as a stressor in your life and then you can focus on the things that motivate you and, mm-hmm. and do the things you really want to do and in my mind that's really what financial freedom is. But you talked about lifestyle a bit and how you had to kind of gauge what what lifestyle you wanted wanted to live. At what point did it feel to you like, hey, I am financially free. I'm living a lifestyle I want and this is everything's in place? That's such a good question. I actually was just discussing this with a few friends of mine just in the last couple of weeks. So these are folks who are still working in traditional medicine. They're feeling very burnt out. They're feeling like they don't, you know, control their time. Objectively, you know, they're making much more money than than most you know, Americans would hope for, you know, somewhere between four and 700,000 per year. They are, of course, paying a lot of taxes on that. But objectively, a lot of money is hitting their bank account, yet they feel so unfree. And, you know, I think for me, we were building our financial freedom at the same time that I was training as a psychiatrist. And so I was objectively becoming more financially free. There was more money flowing through the bank account that we weren't, you know, trading time for money for. But I also subjectively was becoming more financially free through understanding mindset and how the human spirit works and all of those things. I think like a simple answer could be, you know, what's the number that covers your housing costs, basic food, basic transportation, some type of health insurance and a small amount of luxuries. And when you hit that number, at that point, you just stack onto it. Okay, well, we have this, but we want to take one amazing vacation per year. Okay, we have this, but we want to take four amazing vacations per year. Okay, we have this, but we want you know a bigger house, whatever. You just keep stacking and keep growing that number. But I think from a human perspective, which I think is the more accurate perspective, there really needs to be a deep acknowledgement and real work that happens where you say to yourself, I am free simply because I'm alive. I am free simply because I wake up each day and I get to decide what I do. Even if that means I begrudgingly go into a W-2 job where I feel stuck, you're not actually stuck. You're making a choice that the trade-off is greater. You're getting more than you're giving, right? So even if you feel burnt out in those sorts of things, the paycheck brings more value than the freedom. You can make the conscious choice to say, even despite the challenges, even despite a lot of headwinds and needing to figure out some things, I'm going to step away from the paycheck and figure out the alternate path. And then just kind of stripping that back as far as possible. Like you're free without your house. You're free without your car. You're free without, you know, so many things. Like think of the, you know, the people that we know, like Viktor Frankl, right? Who wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning. Like he found freedom in a war prisoner camp. Like if he can do that and we're all humans, then we can do it too. And so simultaneously working on the objective number freedom while working on the subjective inner freedom, knowing that the inner freedom is so much more valuable than the objective numbers freedom. And that if you don't have the inner freedom, the number, you'll just, you'll keep pushing it out. You'll say, oh, I'll feel free when I have 100,000 per year of passive income, then you'll get there and you'll make up some reason why, oh, well, it actually needs to be 200. 
versus you could say the number is 100,000 per year of financial freedom, but you're working on the subjective inner piece and you'll find, wow, you know, I actually only have 40,000 per year coming in passively, but I feel very free. I know that I get to make my decisions. I know that even the decisions that I don't necessarily like to do, I know that I'm doing them consciously because I'm getting some type of benefit from them. I feel as though I have freedom. And then the numbers becomes a much smaller part of the picture. I have seen that literally hundreds of times working with our investors, working with people in our coaching groups, you know, all of these things, because I have this, you know, unique insight into running a business, doing real estate, passive investing, all of those things, and my life as a psychiatrist, and seeing that the two cannot exist without each other. And subjective freedom is actually so much more valuable than objective freedom. We just put a lot of emphasis on objective freedom because it's more polite to talk about versus subjective freedom where you have to work through you know, your own mindset and your own limitations and your own you know, whatever money beliefs you have from childhood and those sorts of things. It's, the, the work is a little bit harder but it brings much more value. Yeah, that's such a good point. So I think that's the piece that a lot of people are missing, right? And that they're they're trying to seek by going getting into real estate, which which you at one point that was your problem also, right? Like you you guys were trying to figure this out. So you guys obviously are very you and your husband have a track record of of just being being able to overcome problems and and learn skills to put you in this position. How does someone that, that that maybe is just starting out that doesn't have the skills or the education go about figuring out how to do something similar or a, a version of what you did? So start by starting, right? There's there's a ton of value in podcasts like these, books, blogs, you know, Facebook groups, all of those things. But just like in medicine, you spend a few years in the classroom and then you go out and you see patients, right? You learn so much more from being in the exam room, in the hospital, seeing patients. It's the same thing in every profession, real estate included. Learn some basic, you know, terminology and those sorts of things from, you know, sources like podcasts and blogs and books and things. And then go out and do things. Go out and go to your local real estate meetups. Go out and meet with real estate agents, lenders, successful real estate investors, People love to talk about themselves. So people who are further along the journey than you, many of them are very excited to mentor young people for a quick lunch, you know, whatever. Just say, hey, I'll be totally silent, but can I just follow you around during a day? Like Nick and I get that request all the time. We honor it probably 10 or 12 times per year when we feel like, man, this person really has like a spirit. Like they're they're really excited about this. And of course, we don't just make them be quiet. We answer their questions throughout the day. But we get a ton of value because... Number one, it feels good to share your story with other people. Number two, you become better at business when you have to explain your business to other people, right? So as we're explaining our systems and processes or those sorts of things, we get benefit out of that. And then we get to see someone who's further behind us in the journey, you know, grow from that. So if you're, if you are that person further behind in the journey, who can you reach out to ahead of you and say, I just want to learn from you. Can I take you to lunch? Can I have a phone call with you? Is there something I can do for you? Can I serve you in some way? Is there a part of your business I can, you know, help you with? And then just get out there and, and make moves, make offers, call lenders, get things figured out. And you will learn so much more by doing than you will by thinking about it or reading about it. Lane, what do you do to elevate yourself now that you've reached this level? There's always another level. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Curious. 
Yeah. So right now I live with this belief that I should be spending about 30% of my time with people who are further ahead of me. Some of that is things like masterminds that I'm in, business groups that I'm in, strategic coach, working directly with coaches. I have several personal coaches that I work with. I do that up for about 30% of my time. And then about 30% of my time I spend with peers. So people who have businesses that are similar to me, incomes that are similar to me, where you know kind of have similar struggles in terms of like how to hire and how to build the business and how to do the legal structure, you know, all of those things were we're right there in the thick of it together. And then about 30% of the time where I'm the one mentoring, coaching, teaching, you know, reaching my hand back to help people further along. I find that that's a really beautiful dance that just kind of effortlessly creates opportunities. Obviously I'm learning and growing when I'm working with the folks who are ahead of me, but I'm also learning and growing when I'm working with my peers and saying, here, try this, or this worked for me, or I don't know, this didn't work for me or, you know, those sort of things. And then clearly, you know, putting things together and distilling it when I'm working with people who are, who are further behind than me on the journey and recognizing that there's all these parallel journeys and, you know, I might be ahead of someone in one part of the journey, but they're ahead of me in another. And so we have all these kind of like interlocked relationships. That's how I think about my time. When I look at my calendar each week, I'm trying to spend about a third of my time in each of those buckets. Wow. That's awesome context. So typically I've found that that the peer side of things, it's fairly easy to add value to someone that's kind of in around where you are. You guys can talk about things. And and then obviously the the mentee thing that's fairly easy because I'm sure there's a ton of people out there that would be interested in in something like that. But then there's there's the 30% where you have to elevate yourself and and really connect with somebody that's that's ahead of you. That could mm-hmm. be more challenging, especially if you're at a lower level to get to to find that. So how do you go about finding those types of relationships? Is it always paid or do you have some other method? A little of both. So local mm-hmm. real estate groups are are a great one. Creating a local real estate group, if there isn't something like that in your area, or for example, in our area, there is a really robust local real estate group for kind of your you know, typical like mom and pop landlords. We've been a part of that for years. We started out as like little babies in that group, and then we ran the group for years, and now we're kind of like the elders. And so we have a you know very large property management company. And so we are creating a local mastermind for other large property management companies. So some of those folks will be our peers, but a lot of those folks are going to be very far ahead of us in terms of the size of their company or the age of their company. So we're creating this, this value mechanism for people in our local community to go out and say, hey, we're all running large property management companies in this area. We're all subject to the same market forces, regulation, all of those things. Why don't we meet once a month or once a quarter? And there's no fee for that. There's no you know specific agenda. There's no upsell, anything like that. It's just getting together and sharing what's working and talking about ways that we can overcome challenges together. And then I get to be in a room with people who are further ahead of me because I'm creating that ecosystem. So that's something that comes to mind. Many of them are paid. I'm two years into strategic coach. I really like strategic coach for creating a business. They're all about first getting all of your ducks in a row as an entrepreneur then creating what they call a self-managing company, then creating what they call a self-replicating company. Those words are, you know, pretty self-explanatory, but you're in a room with people whose businesses are really big, really old. And, you know, not only are you learning from the tent and the coach of strategic coach, but from the peers there, working one-on-one with a coach is really valuable. We spend a number each year that makes me a little bit nauseous on coaching, but I know that we get, you know, a hundred or a thousand X ROI from that. 
So regardless of where you are, you can find a coach that fits your price point, work with that person, keep changing coaches, keep going up the coaching ladder as you have more income, you know, want to get into bigger and bigger circles. But there's a couple of ways that you can do it for free right in your local area. You can create it so that you're in relationship with people who are further ahead of you because you've created value for them. And you can do a lot of really wonderful paid coaching programs. That's awesome. I, I'm a part of EO. We have our local chapter out here and mm-hmm. it's been it's been very valuable. Mm-hmm. But I, I I think you guys are members of GoBundance as well. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Yeah. There's a ton of groups like that that you could sign up for. I don't regret doing it. I think it's worth every dollar to get Absolutely. into that. But I love the idea of creating kind of a local group or something like that, where you're just adding value to the group. And then you naturally kind of find those people that, that come up as mm-hmm. well. As far as the coach goes, that one is always, for me personally, it's been a bit of a challenge. I've had maybe five or six coaches in my life, but finding the right fit, you kind of have to I feel like you kind of have to go through a few because a lot of them haven't done what you have, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the people that have, you probably couldn't pay them to coach you hourly. So it's it's a little bit of a tricky thing, but, there, but there's other value benefits there. I'm curious, how did you kind of go about vetting them in that process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's an excellent question. I think because I come from medicine, it, it's very easy for me to enter into relationships with coaches. And so for, for people that, that aren't as familiar with the medical training model, basically you do medical school where it's, you know, book learning. And then in residency, you're changing usually once per month where you're working with a different, what's called an attending. So they're the senior physician on the team and then different residents. So those are your peer colleagues and then nursing staff and other patient care professionals. But you're working with a different captain of the ship, so to speak, every single month. And medicine is very much an art as in most professions in the world, certainly in real estate, investing, all of those things. So you can simultaneously take amazing care of a patient going down path A. And then the next month you're working with a different captain of the ship and you're like, oh, patient has, you know, this illness, we do A. And they're like, oh, no, 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 we do B. And you're like, well, wait a second. The person before you said A, and you just have to have this appreciation that both A and B are great paths. And as you're creating your own playbook as a physician, you decide what parts of A do you want to incorporate? What parts of B do you want to incorporate? Do you want to come up with your own, you know, different way to treat that that patient? Because there's so much art in medicine. And so because I, I had that paradigm for so many years in residency, when I started working with coaches, I just kept that same perspective. I have never had a coach that I agree with 100% of what they say. If I did, that would probably be a huge red flag that they're just mirroring back to me what they think I want to hear and they're not actually coaching me. You know, they're just like afraid to insult me or challenge me or something. So that would be a huge red flag if you have a coach that you agree with every single thing that they say. And when I find something that I don't agree with or doesn't jive with me or whatever, I sort of put it in a file in my mind that's some file of like, hey, this doesn't align with me, so I'm just going to stick it over here. But I'm also going to come back to it every once in a while, maybe once a quarter or something like that, to ask myself, is there really merit here that I wasn't ready for or that I wasn't wise enough to understand? Because you don't just want to throw out everything that you disagree with, but you also don't want to just agree with the things that you you know don't agree with just for the sake of it. So it's kind of this dance of you know, that doesn't quite align with me right now, but I'll put it in the file in my mind. I'll keep coming back to it and ask what what value can I glean out of it? What can I learn? How can I bring that into my skill repertoire? 
And then not being afraid to work with many different coaches and not having any like mind drama around that or, you know, it means that you didn't like your coach or didn't get value out of them. That relationship ran its course. You learned from that artist what you needed to learn. And then you move on to different folks. I've had relationships with coaches for three months. I've had relationships with coaches for, you know, several years and I get different things from different coaches, but I know that, you know, each one of them is like teaching me like an artist technique, right? Some are working with pastels and some are working with oils and sometimes we're doing landscapes and sometimes we're doing portraits, but on the whole, I'm becoming a better artist by working with all of these other artists. That is so well put. I really appreciate that perspective because I I personally am just like, ah, this person doesn't just doesn't have the experience sometimes or they're, you know, I'll notice these things and they'll bother me. So I really like that perspective. Good. Elaine, how can people get a hold of you if they need to? Absolutely. Our website is meetblackswan.com, meetblackswan.com. The name of our company is Black Swan Real Estate. On the website, it's all about my husband and I, our portfolio, how to invest with us. Once a month, we do what we call our live community power hour, where we teach on a particular topic. That's kind of that you know, part of that third of the bucket where I'm helping people who are maybe a little behind us on the journey. So we do a live teaching hour once per month. All sorts of resources are right there on the website, meetblackswan.com. Awesome. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I love what Elaine said about how you should properly transition out of your W-2 into your entrepreneurship. I thought that her insights as to how they did it was was very helpful. And a key thing there is that they didn't just jump ship right away. They had a plan and then they had backup for the plan. And I think that's that's typically the best way to go about that. That's how I've done it is you, you have some form of income. You're not just completely burning the ships, sleeping on a couch until you figure it out. You have some kind of other thing going on. And as you can see with Elaine, She's done, she, they were doing their jobs and still running a, a business with 40 houses, which is, which is crazy. So it is possible. You just have to figure out how to make it work. I also really related and, and loved her insight as to how she spends 30% of her time with people that are further than her, 30% with her peers and 30% where she's mentoring. And at least some version of that, I think that's super powerful. That way you're you're kind of working all directions. When you go when you go down and mentor someone, you're teaching them and you get better at your own skills. Plus you're, you just get an immense amount of value out of that. When you're with your peers, you're learning things in your own business. And the same thing with when you're looking out ahead and, and having mentors in your life, you can you can move up the chain faster. So I really love that. That's how she breaks that down. And and I think that anyone out there is listening can, can strive for that too. Take that and model it out. What does that look like for you? Who would those relationships be that would allow you to go in those three directions? And what does that look like? How many do you need? Where do you find them? And then put that into action. And I think it can really help you out. Also paying for different groups. I think that's that's totally fine as well. I've gotten a ton of value out of paying for my membership at the EO. Just meet a lot of great like-minded people, form relationships, and then you know you can do a ton of things with that. So it's it's been a really cool thing for, that I found that she's also found, and uh, I recommend it for anyone out there that that can uh, get into a program like that as well. So again, guys, if you're interested in partnering with the pros in this time when deals are going to be ridiculously amazing, reach out to us at NighthawkEquity.com and set up a call, and we'd be happy to talk to you, see if it's a fit to work together. 
We've had a lot of success doing these deals in the past, and I've been doing this for uh, 13 years. So it's, it's really something that will help you get in the game if you're not sure how to. With that, guys, thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you showing up and listening to what we have to say. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by downloading Michael's free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Head over to themichaelblock.com slash ebook to get the free training.